The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. These two parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, have had their chance. And they've blown it. Oh, come, nobody ever reads manifestos during the election. Sean, you know that. They've taken our policies. Such a collection of chancers and charlatans. It can't be like, here, vote for me, bye. Yeah, I shall be the tea shop now. It's Wednesday, February the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Do not adjust your receiving devices because through the magic of podcasting, we wanted to take you back in time to the last time that we used that opening tune, which was on February the 11th, 2020, with our very last election daily podcast. It's one year ago this week since voters went to the polls to elect the members of the 33rd Dáil. The result of that election, which saw Sinn Féin emerge as the most popular party, was widely seen as an unprecedented shock to the traditional Irish two-and-a-half-party system. And yet within a few weeks, attention would turn completely away from all of that and onto the global COVID-19 pandemic which struck the country. Today, though, we do want to take a look back at that election result and reflect on what it seemed to mean at the time and also how we should understand it now. What lessons, if any, have the parties learned from it and how has that influenced their strategy since? To discuss this, I am joined by UCC political scientist Theresa Reedy, who is also one of the co-editors of How Ireland Voted, the regular Bible on this subject, which I'm told will be imminently in our bookshops. Also by Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray from our political staff. You're, you're all very welcome. Pat, if I can go to you first. The, the Irish Times is very fond of anniversaries. We mark them all the time. In fact, we're in the middle of a whole bloody decade of them at the moment. And sometimes I'm not quite so sure of the value of those. But in this, it does seem valuable because because of everything that's happened in between now and 12 months ago, I think we've kind of forgotten some of some some of the really significant things that happened in February 2020. Well, I'm not sure we've forgotten them, Hugh, but I suppose, you know, given the tumultuous year that, we, that we've had, it's no harm in, uh, in reminding us of them. And for those of us that watch the kind of daily practice of politics and, uh, you know, follow the ups and downs of changing policies, it's, it, we can sometimes forget how large elections loom in the minds of politicians. So we tend to think about elections just before they happen. And obviously, we're very intensively engaged in covering them. Uh, 
when they're on and their fallout afterwards. But politicians think of elections in a different way than we do. They think about them all the time and everything that they do uh, uh, in, in, in between elections has uh, one eye on uh, an election. So it's no harm to remind ourselves of that, uh, I suppose. I mean, clearly last year, and we'll come on to, I guess, talk about this in more uh, in more detail, but I think it's important when looking at last year's election not to consider it as a solitary, unconnected event. I think it was the third in a series of profound change elections, elections that brought about profound change to our politics and our political system beginning in 2011, continuing in 2016 and reaching uh, perhaps a culmination or perhaps just one in another series, in in a continuing series or rather a series that is to be continued uh, in change elections. But you can't make sense, I think, of what happened during the 2020 uh, election and subsequently without one eye on what happened uh, beforehand. The, the traditional politics of this country, which changed, you know, very little by comparison to other Western European democracies between the years of, you know, the 1920s or the 1930s and uh, and the 1980s and 1990s has changed massively in terms of, you know, how the political landscape is ordered in the, the last 15 or 20 years. And the benchmarks of change during that period uh, were the general elections. They showed us the changes that were taking place. They gave expression to those political changes. And last year, I think, was the obviously the most recent in that succession of big changes. Teresa, what do you think of that, that analysis, that this is the third in a kind of a three-act play of dramatic change in, in Irish politics? And if, and I'm trying to stay away from crystal ball gazing, but, you know, is that an ongoing process? Is it going to end up being a four-election play or a five-election play? Because uh, one of the things that strikes me about the results we saw last February was that I'm sure for at least some of the players involved, particularly Sinn Féin perhaps, they saw it as a staging post rather than an endpoint. I mean, I think the best way of thinking about politics is that it's a dynamic process anyway. Uh, so the question, or I suppose the case is that ours has been a lot more dynamic recently than it had been for, you know, the preceding decades I think one of the really interesting things to look at over the last couple of elections, and I do agree entirely with Pat that, that this is a process, is that it's the connections that voters are making with political parties. In the past, p- voters actually made enduring connections to political parties. And that was the stability that actually generated the party system. So people were attached to political parties and they voted for them over long periods of time. What we've seen since 2011 is that the connections that voters are making with political parties are much more transient uh, and they're much more uh, subject to change. And there is a very strong penalty uh, for governing. So political parties that promise a great deal, suggest uh, a new dawn, um, when they get into 
power, the realities of governing are indeed much more complex. And they often lose uh, the you know, fleeting voters that they had gained at the preceding uh, election. So voting has become, you know, a much more transitory uh, process than it was in, in the past. And that kind of enduring connection that people make with, with uh, political parties just isn't there anymore. And, and that's why I think there, this isn't an in point. There's no reason to believe that what happened in 2020 uh, was voters forming a more permanent or enduring connection uh, with the political parties they chose in 2020 rather than in 2016 or in, uh, in, in, in 2011. And, and this is a phenomenon and across the, the world that, that kind of deep and enduring connection, that social bases that underpinned politics in so many countries are, are eroding. Uh, and that's why we're seeing so much fragmentation in politics and so much change uh, from one, uh, one election to the next election. If we look at 2016 and, and 2020, and these were elections that actually took pace against the backdrop of relatively stable economic activity. Um, so they, they shouldn't have been in the kind of typical sense of the word, uh, transformative elections, uh, the kinds of volatility and changing from uh, one party to, to another um, has to be rooted in something more than just the, the regular process of day-to-day politics at a time of uh, positive economic development. So we, we're seeing something different happening, which is that, you know, this connection to, to political parties is, is much more transitory and therefore it's much more volatile. And um, we've seen that flow out from the kind of 2011 election, which kicked off this in a very, it accelerated this process in a very significant way. And I think we'll see the um, consequences of that flowing for several more elections to, to, to come. There's no reason to believe that this is a, a new stable point um, in, the, in the system. No, I mean, stability is definitely not going to be the paramount factor, Jen. If you're looking at those those two factors there, which which Theresa describes, one being that voters are much more fickle, I suppose, much more likely to bounce from one party to another between one election and another. And the other one is that there's a penalty attached to governing and that you're likely to do better at the next election if you haven't been in power. You put those two things together and uh, that, call it instability, call it greater flexibility, whatever you care to call it, it's a very different kind of a dynamic, isn't it? It is a very different dynamic. And I think that, the as pointed out by both Pat and Theresa, the dynamic fundamentally shifted after 2011 and after the recession um, and after Fida Fall were booted out. And I think Fine Gael were given that chance to come in and address some of the issues, uh, some of the many issues that, that people had. And to a certain degree, obviously, they got back into 2016. Um, and, well, we know what happened last year. And I think people probably were looking at the sort of dominance of those two parties, Fianna Fáil, and Fine Gael and the two-party system that we'd had before, maybe thinking that that wasn't for them anymore, um, and or even a two-and-a-half-party system of one party with maybe a smaller party, uh, Labour or so on. And so we saw the change, the, the shift away from the dependence on one or the other. And I think in that intervening period, um, Sinn Féin obviously spent those years building up uh, around the country, um, selecting their candidates, etc., and really coming into their own. Um, so it's not, it really, looking back, it was no great surprise, I think, that Sinn Féin did so well. I think maybe it was the speed of it, probably, that took people by surprise. I suppose the other thing that has changed um, since 2011, 2016, and then last year, is, I think, the advent of social media in politics. And it has played a role in making it more volatile, I think. Um, I think things play out so much quicker. Uh, there's There's an extra heat to it. You know, you would previously have had maybe a political controversy that would have played out over a week or two. They play out now over 24-hour periods. Um, and I think politicians are 
perhaps too attuned to what's happening on social media. And some of them seem to believe that, you know, you have to react on the basis of what's happening there rather than maybe what the the, the better reaction might be um, long term. Um, so I think there's a couple of things at play there. And, you know, the if you look back to last year, what were the things that really mattered to people? You know, what is it that captured the imagination when it came to Sinn Féin in that campaign? And obviously we know it were the issues, uh, they were the issues of uh, housing and health, but there were other issues too. You know, you remember the um, the rise in the pension age. I think that became um, quite a big issue for people. And Sinn Féin took those issues and made them sort of their campaign from a very, very early stage. And Fine Gael, on the other hand, I suppose instead of really addressing those uh, major, major, we're talking about people who can't, you know, get a home, you know, we're talking about a homeless crisis. And now we know how important it is to have, uh, we've always known how important, but now we really know how important it is to have a fully, properly funded, properly resourced um, health service. But instead of kind of addressing those issues and maybe saying, maybe holding their hands up and saying what they would do differently, the Fine Gael campaign focused on Brexit. And they focused on the economy. And that just didn't capture people's minds. Now, obviously, we're in a different position now in terms of the economy. Maybe people would think differently now. Maybe people would put a bigger st- a bigger stall, a bigger stock, more importance on the economy. But at the time, I think people would be fed up of hearing that we were only halfway through Brexit and that we had Team A. You don't want to let Team B in. You don't want to put Sinn Féin in because of stuff in the past. People weren't really connecting with that message at all. And afterwards, I think Fine Gael had a review um, of the election, they they did find that they were detached, you know, detached from what people were, uh, what mattered to people, to be honest. So I think, you know, n- like not underestimate the actual issues that come up um, in, a, in a general election campaign beyond kind of just the wider sort of political affiliations that people generally might have. Pat, we, we do know that campaigns matter, but is it the case, given the landscape which uh, Theresa and Jen are talking about there, that campaigns matter more than they used to, that there's greater volatility in the electorate, there is more opportunity to get a real surge just over the course of the three or four weeks of a campaign? Because that certainly looks to me like one of the lessons from last year. Campaigns have always mattered. I think one of the corollaries of the picture that we've been painting and that Teresa uh, described earlier is that campaigns matter more than they used to, simply because if there are fewer voters who are historically, naturally and unalterably aligned with particular parties, and there are, in the way that we used to think of Fianna Fáil households and Fianna Gael households. Now, that is much less the case when, you know, looking at electorate, and that's the way politicians will tend uh, to look at it. But if there are fewer Fianna Fáil households or fewer members of the Fianna Fáil households that can be guaranteed to vote for Fianna Fáil, that means that there are more votes up for grabs in the campaign and the period that um, uh, and the period that 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 goes before it. So uh, I think we've seen in the last number of elections how there has tended to be in those in those three elections and even to some degree before that how there has tended to be a move in one direction during the uh, during the campaign and that happened to Sinn Fein's benefits certainly. Uh, in in last year's election. But let's not forget that if that caught us there, the extent of that caught us who were covering the campaign by surprise. It also caught Sinn Féin by surprise because after a series of very poor elections, most particularly the uh, the local and European elections in 2019, Sinn Féin went in 
to last year's election on the defensive. In the week before the election was called, Sinn Féin was still trimming its tickets. It was taking candidates off tickets because it was afraid that instead of challenging for two seats in constituencies, it was going to split the vote and end up with no seat in in some constituencies, which is what gave you that underperformance uh, relevant to its share of the vote in terms of the TDs that it, uh, that it returned. So, you know, while Sinn Féin fought a really good campaign uh, last year, certainly, it hit that wave and it demonstrated, I think, that Mary Lou MacDonald uh, is a very formidable campaigner who generates a connection with people on the campaign trail and that will be a factor in the next election uh, whenever it comes. To some degree, Sinn Féin was lucky to hit that wave at the time. You know, not entirely by accident, certainly to some degree by design. But that having been said, it still caught uh, it still caught the party. It still called caught the party somewhat by surprise and demonstrates, I think, the truth of what we're saying is that as the electorate has de-aligned, more votes in the political marketplace are up for grabs. Ergo, the campaign matters more. Theresa, I was looking back at the coverage of the election exactly a year ago um, as the results came in that week. And one of the recurring themes was that this had proved to be a change election, that people were looking for change. Now, there was some argument about whether they got that in the end with the government that we finally got. But what was the change that people were looking for? And who were the kind of the key parts of the electorate who were driving that desire for change? I guess change was the kind of word of the of the moment. Um, in in terms of who moved their vote or, or or who moved from one political party to to another, we we know that younger people um, drifted towards Sinn Fein in in greater numbers than they had at previous elections, but there was actually a more substantial movement towards Sinn Fein. So the party has struggled usually amongst older voters, but in 2020, even amongst older voters, uh, 65 plus, um, they were actually picking up more. So they were picking up across the whole demographic spectrum, but they were particularly doing well in the kind of 18 to 34 demographic. So we know younger uh, people in particular for Sinn Féin, younger people without third level education, but they do especially well. That's probably their strongest cohort, but they do well also uh, with people with third level education. So I think age and, and, and social experience were very significant in moving a cohort of, uh, of people away from the governing party, uh, Fine Gael, um, and, and towards other political, uh, political parties. Fianna Fáil, um, you know, is, is for, for 10 years now, we've been talking about Fianna Fáil kind of stuck in this, this vice grip that it doesn't entirely know where it's going to position itself. Um, is it going to um, advance itself or continue as a kind of a localist, conservative style political movement, uh, which is clearly what kind of a co- cohort of the TDs want? And then uh, there's the leadership that are kind of dragging the party, if you want, in a more social democratic and probably kind of socially pragmatic uh, direction. And and it, it's constantly getting squeezed in, in this uh, in this space. It does well amongst older voters, but there's a kind of a horrible demographic reality about doing well amongst older voters, that there are fewer and fewer uh, older, uh, older voters. And it's not building its brand or connecting to younger voters. So when you look at the age profile of the people who voted for the party, it does really poorly. 
uh, amongst um, uh, amongst uh, younger voters. And I think there's an, another thing to layer in here, and that I think there's the space between Fianna Fáil and, and, and Sinn Féin is that Fianna Fáil used to do very well amongst um, urban working class voters. Um, it it really, uh, and if we think particularly of the Bertie Ahern years, it did especially well in, in that demographic. And Sinn Féin has been putting it under enormous pressure um, in that space for, for a very long time. And it's been absorbing those uh, those those voters. The question, as I said at the start, is, is whether this connection is enduring or whether it's temporary on the basis of a particular set of circumstances at any individual uh, election. But but there's no doubt that there there are um, contours of a, a new kind of social base that's underpinning the voting patterns uh, that we see. So we, we see um, Sinn Féin doing particularly well amongst uh, DE um, voters uh, D, uh, and say Fine Gael doing particularly well amongst kind of the upper middle classes. Um, we see an age effect with Fianna Fáil doing better with the older voters, particularly on the western seaboard, but Sinn Féin gobbling up in, in, the, in the younger age cohorts. So there are social dynamics that we can identify here and say that they underpin some of, of what is uh, some of what is happening. So who want to change? Well, the people who were moving away from the traditional kind of two-party system towards these other parties in the system. Other beneficiaries, of course, at the election in 2020 were the Green Party, um, which really surged um, in terms of its representation in Parliament. And I think the Social Democrats, I think the Greens were expected to do very well. Um, you know, if we were here a year ago, um, before the election, we would have been expecting and anticipating um, the Green Party to do well. I think the Social Democrats also captured some of that uh, that space somewhat more unexpectedly and grew significantly. Um, and the Greens, the Labour Party and um, the Social Democrats, uh, they're all swimming in the one pool. Uh, they're drawing their voters from very similar, um, well-educated uh, uh, cohorts of, of voters. So there's there's a common kind of... Uh, a common uh, social profile uh, to the people who vote for those political parties and, and to some extent kind of minor issue differences or indeed candidate-based factors and the fact that those parties don't run candidates in every constituency influence the kind of final outcome of how many get selected from each of those. And we might look in a, in a, in a moment about what that means for the emergence of more of a left-right divide along, you know, traditional lines that we're familiar with from other countries in Ireland. But I, I wanted to ask you, Jen, about that, about that generational uh, question, which I think is is really interesting, that there clearly is, perhaps not surprisingly, huge dissatisfaction uh, among the under 35s with the card which they've been dealt by the Irish state as it emerged out of the post-crash um, years of of 2008 and 2009. Um, and that's that's a huge problem. You know, if you're in any business, including running a political party, if you've lost the youngest cohort, that's not good for your future, for your future prospects, is it? No, not really. I mean, to a certain degree, this kind of debate about engaging young people in politics has been around for, you know, a long time. This isn't really anything particularly new, I don't think, you know. And I just think the context has changed. And I think that, you know, for all the reasons that we've already outlined and the shift away from the two-party system, the shift away from the party loyalty that we would have seen before. Also, that generational thing of, you know, your, who your father voted for, who your family voted for, if your family was a Fianna Fáil family, if Fianna family, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of that is kind of, you know, um, not really the way people vote now. And I think for, for, for younger voters, what we've seen, you know, issues that they have been engaged with um, over the last few years, we can look towards maybe some of the referendums that we've had, um, same-sex marriage referendum, uh, referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, 
Um, and there was talk of those during those referendums that those issues would politicize kind of a younger generation. And then even that school of thought had its critics saying, no, these are specific issues and you're not going to see these uh, younger people, maybe who are even flying home to vote, if you remember, necessarily engaging with the wider wider political system. I think really what happens is, you know, as you maybe move through your 20s, uh, you know, into your 30s, you kind of take more of a stake, I suppose, in society. Maybe you need to, maybe you have a family, maybe you need to, you know, buy a home, maybe you can't get a home, maybe you've lost your job, you know, basically you've more responsibility. And I think the engagement between people in politics, I think it tends to increase in terms of the stake that you have in politics uh, when you get a little bit older. Um, and I think probably if we just look to the le- lessons of the last general election, the things that matter to the younger voters, and we saw this broken down, um, as we mentioned there, in terms of the different parties and which voters voted for which issues. It was it was those issues of um, particularly housing and, and health. Um, so I think the challenge is still there for parties to really figure out how they get those younger voters on board. And I think we're, we're seeing some parties trying to uh, I suppose capitalize on, like I mentioned earlier on, the social media and thinking, okay, these uh, younger voters are primarily very, te- very tech savvy, you know, very much on all of the platforms, probably not buying a newspaper, potentially not a subscriber. How do you talk to these younger cohort people? And I think that's a question that's still very much unanswered, to be honest, because the idea of you know, uh, one party downloading a TikTok account and, you know, somehow garnering a huge amount of votes from that, I don't think it uh, necessarily will wash because, you know, we, like we said, the, the things that matter to those voters um, aren't the things that matter to, to, the, to the voters before. So I think, you know, if you look at what the parties are doing at the moment, uh, Sinn Féin very much dominant across social media. And we've seen that in the last election. They were the party to be contended with, they were all over Facebook, Twitter, you name it, they were they were on it. And, you know, we saw all these kind of memes and stuff, stuff that captured sort of the imagination and creativity. Um, and the other parties are going back to their base. Like Fine Gael is very much involved in going back to their constituencies at the moment. We've got Owen Murphy, I think, who is being tasked by Leo Varadkar with uh, really going back and finding out what went wrong in each individual constituency. Fianna Fáil the same, but Fianna Fáil obviously uh, just have got their feet back under the under the table. And for the first hundred days of government, we're really just trying to figure out, uh, you know, the levers of power again. And in fact, their first hundred days of power were a complete calamity. I think it's fair to say. So yeah, I think that that question of younger voters very much, very much an open question still. But if we take the if we take the lessons from the last election, that they are very much motivated by issues which affect them naturally then I suppose that's where the parties will be looking next time to, to ensure they have uh, either a, a better track record on or some some eye-catching promises or solutions, you know. Pat, Georges Clemenceau said, I think, that um, a man who is not a socialist at 20 is a knave, but a man who is a socialist at 30 is a fool. But that was in 19th century France when life expectancies were much shorter and uh, I think there was far lower take up of third level education and, you know, deferred adulthood didn't work in the same way as it does these days. Jen's point about people not having a stake in society, I think, goes much higher up the demographics now because people aren't able to, you know, buy a house, they get into their 30s, they're not able to settle down, get a family, they don't have security of, of tenure in their jobs in, in some cases. Um, 
Is that perhaps one of the things that's contributing to what I, I think is pretty obviously something of a leftward shift in Irish politics? There's no doubt. Uh, I, yes, I, is the answer to your question. And there's no doubt that uh, there has been a leftward shift in Irish politics. I think that is obviously clearly the case since this massive expansion of the state fueled by borrowing that we've seen during uh, the, the the pandemic. But actually, it was underway well before that. And I've, I've, I've written about it uh, a couple of times that, you know, the, 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 the divide, I mean, you can describe it as an emerging left-right uh, divide. And, uh, and, and, and that's fine insofar as it goes. I think, um, it, it's perhaps more accurately described as a divide between, uh, political moderates and political radicals. And, uh, for the first time, I think, you know, with Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, uh, Green, uh, Green government, uh, as we have, all, all or most of the moderates are in the uh, the governing camp. One of the reasons why the question of coalition is so difficult, I think, or has been so difficult and will probably become more difficult for the Green Party is that divide between moderates and radicals, between those who favour slow and incremental change, sustaining many of the advances or as many of the advances as possible as Irish society has made over the last uh, the last several decades and those who favour uh, on, on, on the other side of the political divide, those who favour uh, much sharper, much more dramatic, much more radical change. Um, I, I think that line of division, that dividing line goes kind of through the middle of the Green Party. Uh, which is one of the reasons why it 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 it, it is finding and will find uh, coalition difficult. But I, I I think you know those are. I mean, you can describe the division in different ways, but it is uh, it it certainly seems to me to be the emerging shape of Irish politics with the radicals on one side and the moderates uh, on the other. And I think. For now, the uh, for now at least, the momentum seems to me to be uh, to be with the radicals. I think that could possibly uh, possibly shift, but um, certainly those on the radical side of that divide: Sinn Fein, many of the independents, people before profit, most of the social democrats, um, Labour by rhetoric, if not by uh, by genuine political inclination or history are all on that side which favours much more uh, much more radical change in uh, in Irish society. I think their election manifestos will, uh, when the next election comes, will reflect that. And a good deal of how that is perceived is influenced by both generational and socioeconomic status, and those two are obviously related. Theresa, I'm very interested by this just in terms of looking looking ahead for a moment. Whether you characterize it as Pat does as, you know, radical and moderate or whether you characterize it as left or right, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that that matters that much. But there is for those on the left side of the ideological divide in, in Ireland, it, it seems more so than ever before, you know, the prospect tantalizingly within reach 
of a, essentially a left-wing majority in the next doll should things go well, should Sinn Féin increase their seats by, by the amount they hope to, then along with a number of the smaller groupings, probably including the Green Party taking on board what, what Pat says about them there. But I can't see the Green Party having a huge problem with things like Sinn Féin's housing policy, for example, putting together a, a governing coalition for the, for the first time in the, in the history of the Irish state. But that then raises the question of the other element of what constitutes current left-wing politics in Ireland, which is populism. And that's really where the divide is between within the left, isn't it? On on issues such as carbon tax, property tax, um, sorts of things which um, have sustained the smaller parties like PPP and Sinn Féin in opposition, but co- could cause all kinds of governing problems for them should they be looking to actually uh, enter government. Yeah, I suppose to start with, it's it's worth saying that we're we're closer to balance between left and right now than we've really ever been at any kind of point in history before. Um, our our voting preferences in Ireland have tended to, towards the right, mostly to the centre right, with you know parties um, getting up to eighty percent of the vote uh, on that side of the spectrum. And and now with the kind of shifting balance in support, uh, we're much closer to equality than we've ever been in the past. So so we are in a genuinely different uh, electoral environment uh, to that which we've we've seen before. But one of the kind of defining features of the left for a long time in Ireland is, is still with us, and that is that it is very fragmented, uh, and there are a lot of smaller political parties. And there are inherent dangers for a lot of those political parties at the next election. And, you know, if we if we look, dig into them in a, in a little bit of detail, I mean, the far left parties, people before profit, solidarity, rise. I mean, they're basically on electoral life support from Sinn Féin. The, the only reason that most of their TDs are actually still there is because Sinn Féin didn't have second candidates uh, or, or somebody else to transfer to in the constituencies uh, where they uh, where they got elected. So one of the things that we kind of have to be alert to is that there could be more consolidation of the left at the next uh, election um, and with a kind of a, a single larger party emerging at the core of the left, which will be essential for them if they're going to form a government. And that really, the momentum seems to be with Sinn Féin very clearly at the moment. But but as Sinn Féin expands, um, you know, they become the anchor of the left, uh, but they will also gobble up some of the kind of softer seats uh, on the edges or on the periphery uh, uh, around them. And, and that could actually make it easier for them to go into uh, to go into government uh, because they will have a, a stronger position. They will need to engage with with fewer political parties. Uh, and I would kind of in, kind of investigate some of the kind of positioning of these parties a little bit more on on the left because um, parties on on the far left, um, you know, we we talk about centre left and far left, and and by its very nature, that kind of assumes that these parties are kind of close together and that they can easily come together in a government and overcome their policy differences. But oftentimes, parties on the centre left have much more in common with those on the centre right than they do um, with their compatriots on on the same side of the spectrum because parties. Parties on the far left uh, reject the very nature of market capitalism. 
um, you know, they don't agree with the overall system that we have, which is why uh, going into government with parties from the far left would be quite difficult um, for, for, um, uh, for, for Sinn Féin. So it could be, uh, it could actually ease the pathway to power if, if that um, uh, cohort of, of uh, representatives are, were to lose their seats and it would, it would make it a little bit easier for, for Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin, in relation to the populism things, certainly benefit from a very strong anti-establishment populism uh, that exists amongst uh, Irish voters, um, which is kind of a hostility to the general political system, a belief that, you know, uh, politicians are only in it for themselves. They only care about the the rich and and powerful. Uh, They're not interested in, in ordinary voters. So, when we ask voters about these things, we, we find that the party that captures the largest cohort of, of populist voters are, are def- is definitely Sinn Féin. Independents do well um, in, that, uh, in that space as well. Does that necessarily make governing difficult? Well, across Europe, um, you know, populist political parties have been getting into uh, have been getting into government, um, and they've been staying in government. Um, they've had to temper their rhetoric somewhat, I suppose, in in some parts, but but not always. Um, so so populism itself is not necessarily an impediment to government. I think what where the real interesting question lies is how you retain those voters once you are in government. And I think this is, for for Sinn Féin, this is really where the interesting questions are at the moment. Uh, Sinn Féin's success means that, you know, it now leads the opposition. It is becoming part of the political establishment. It's getting closer to uh, governing. But there are real dangers in governing for for Sinn Féin because that governing penalty that has been so punitive for all the other political parties is coming right back at you um, once you get your first term in in, in government. Um, It's probably even more problematic for, for more difficult for Sinn Féin because they do have this strong uh, support base uh, that's so opposed to the system uh, and how you retain that connection to those voters once you become the system um, is uh, is very difficult. Um, and then Sinn Féin, I think it has to be mentioned as well, has other growing pains. All parties experience growing pains um, and difficulties with candidates and, um, y- y- you know, p- people contesting at local level. But these are more protracted or more difficult for, for Sinn Féin, uh, given the nature of, of the political party and its connections um, to the conflict and, and problems of bullying uh, are, are all very difficult um, within the part, more difficult than they are for, for other political parties. So there are lots of things that can trip them up here um, in terms of, of their expansion. But that being said, the, the momentum is, is with them right now. The one last caveat, though, I'd leave on all of that is we have to be a little bit careful about thinking about the kind of terrain on which the next election is going to be fought. Um, there's there's no reason, you know, banana skins, uh, you know, aside and all of that, to believe that there is an election coming anytime soon, and it's likely that the pandemic will will kind of fade into the into the background, and then the political terrain that faces uh, us for the next election is one of very high unemployment, um, you know, protracted problems with economic recovery paying for the significant costs of the uh, pandemic. Uh, There are real problems ahead for the government once it begins to unwind the pandemic supports, uh, because once you give money, it becomes near impossible to take it away without there being, you know, significant pushback against that. And I think that's going to be the context for, for the next election. At the moment, we're kind of in a frozen moment in time um, and, and the pandemic has kind of frozen everything. Um, 
and, and it's very difficult to say where politics and, and looking at it right now, what's going to happen. I, I think we have to roll forward the kind of political fallout and economic fallout of the pandemic and then kind of place where the parties are in that context and imagine where, where the kind of terrain for the next election would be. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, Jen? I mean, one of the things um, that strikes me about that kind of sharpening divide is that one of the parties that might benefit most from that might be Fine Gael in the, med- in the, in the medium to long term. But listening back to a couple of the podcasts that we were doing in this week last year and some of the other coverage, it's a bit like watching the first half of Titanic, you know, which is, you know, as, as far as I remember, is about 14 hours long, uh, in which not a lot happens, but people are kind of, you know, you know, falling in love and cheating on each other and running up and down stairs. And that's sort of the election. Just like the podcast. Yeah. Yes, but little do they know that everything is going to change uh, in the not too distant future. And in a way, looking back 12 months back now, that that that's what it looks like to me but but certain things got obscured because of because of what happened in march almost you know not much more than a month later and among those things is the fact that leo varadkar ran a terrible election campaign and had a terrible result and i'm still not sure that that's been entirely taken on board by finnegale yeah i would agree with you there um i think that it's quite evident that the that finnegale had a very very bad day at the office. And I think, you know, in the early stages of the campaign, when we had some of the first polls coming in, perhaps there was a false sense of security for Fine Gael. I, I definitely sense that even amongst people who talk in Fine Gael about what happened afterwards. You know, when we were two weeks into the campaign and we had our first poll, I think, in the Irish Times, and it had Fianna Fáil at 25% and Fine Gael at 23% and Sinn Féin at 21%. Now, obviously, that was only week two but, you know, I think Sinn Féin at that stage were up seven points and the momentum was clearly there behind them um, at that early stage. And on that day when we had that poll out um, was a day when the unions came out very strongly uh, in relation to the increase in the, in the pension, the planned increase in the pension age. And still, I remember that week, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil weren't properly saying what their plan was for afterwards, for, you know, if they got elected for, for, for that specific issue. And at the end of that week, it was only at the end of the week when we saw them scrambling to form kind of a coherent position on it. And I remember during going to the different campaign events, um, I think I was marking Fine Gael at the time, and they just doubled down on their message on the economy and Brexit. Instead of reacting and seeing kind of momentum, instead of thinking about perhaps changing tack, they just doubled down. And I think when they look back at what they did, I think that was a mistake because clearly the message wasn't resonating with people. Um, and, you know, instead of just continuing on and hoping that people would eventually get it, perhaps looking at what people were, were more engaged by or more enraged by um, even. Uh, so I think in terms of the reviews, uh, Fine Gael, to the best of my knowledge, have finished their review and they found that the party, as I mentioned before, was was detached and they found that the economic reality, as they put it, what they saw as their, their crowning achievement just wasn't being it wasn't being recognised as they felt it by 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 the voters and they had to ask themselves why that was and, and why people didn't necessarily care about Brexit. And then in terms of Fianna Fáil, I think our, our colleague Harry McGee had a piece the other day talking about how I think they've yet to even start their review. I mean, they're in a completely different context here. You know, they haven't even gotten under the skin of, of what happened, albeit that they came out technically on top, you know, with, with, the, with the largest amount of seats. So, uh, that's still a question mark. We still don't know. They certainly haven't gone into any great uh, depths with that, obviously, beyond the, the normal chatter that you'd hear after after any election. 
Finally, Pat, um, as you know well, I, I really don't like to compliment you, but I did listen back to the podcast from the 11th of February 2020. And even though, the you know, it was very unclear what was going to happen, you laid out pretty clearly um, that it was going to take several months, um, that lots of people wouldn't go into government, but that something would probably happen, that there wouldn't be a second election, almost certainly. Um, and a lot of people were talking about a second election in the immediate aftermath of of last February. And although you didn't say that there was going to be a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael Green coalition, you certainly didn't rule it out and it was definitely a, a potential shape of of things to come. So given all that, given that you're, you're proven crystal ball uh, credentials there, um, Listening to what's been said here today, among them the fact that there's a penalty attached to being in power um, and the other being what Theresa said about the, the difficult choices facing this government in the second half of its term. Am I right in saying that Mary Lou Macdonald is odds on to be the next Taoiseach? I think it would be difficult to find anybody in Leinster House who doesn't believe that Sinn Féin are going to be in power after the next election, whether that will be as... Uh, as the lead party in uh, in a coalition, uh, somewhat fanciful, I think, looking at the numbers and the the history of division on the left, whether she might be leader of a majority left coalition, just to go back to something that Teresa was talking about earlier on, not alone would it be difficult, I think, to imagine uh, the people before profit solidarity uh, TDs in a government. I, I, I don't think they would want to be in uh, in a government. That's not what their model of politics is about at this phase in their development. They may have ambitions towards a majority, what they would call socialist government. But I don't think uh, joining a government with all of the compromises that that necessarily entails is something that they um, uh, that they are seriously contemplating now or would do after. Uh, the next election on any imaginable landscape. And if you think that um, the radical left are not going to be brought into um, a coalition and, you know, that party strengths reflect something like what we have at the moment, then Sinn Féin's route to government is with one of the bigger parties. One of the reasons um, uh, I, I... I was making those predictions this time last year, Hugh, is that I think the the mathematical fact was that you needed two of the three big, medium-sized to big parties to join together to, uh, to form the basis of a coalition government. I didn't see that either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael would or could at that stage form a coalition with Sinn Féin. In fact, I wasn't even sure that Sinn Féin really wanted that. But um, irrespective of Sinn Féin's wishes, um, it was clear to me that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael wouldn't do that, which only left them with one option, which was to uh, uh, to come together themselves as the basis for uh, for a coalition. As we know, that's what happened. Now, it is possible, of course, in an election which let us constantly remind ourselves probably won't take place for four or five years. And, you know, where Irish politics is going to be by the beginning of the summer, I find it difficult to predict with any confidence, not to mind where it's going to be in four, uh, three or four years, uh, three or four years time. But... Um, uh, but notwithstanding that, I think that it's likely to be the case that two of the 
three bigger blocks will need to come together to form the basis of a coalition government uh, after the next election. So uh, is that going to be um, is that going to be a repeat of the current um, uh, of, uh, of, of the current government? Uh, possible. Um, is it going to be um, Fianna Fáil and, uh, and Sinn Féin? And I think that, as we've seen in the reporting that um, Jennifer and, uh, and our colleague uh, Cormac have been doing in recent days, that is something that Fianna Fáil is turning itself towards, imagining in a realistic way, um, in a manner that it wasn't this time last year. And I think that that unlocks that that emerging debate in Fianna Fáil about the possibility of a coalition with Sinn Féin, um, which I think is likely to be reflected in a pre-election position that simply doesn't rule it out in the way that it was ruled out uh, last year. I think that unlocks a route to government for Sinn Féin and another possible realignment in Irish politics because, you know, going back again to where we were this time last year, where the only possible government was one, I think, grounded by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. If Fianna Fáil changes its mind on the possibility of a coalition with Sinn Féin, which it seems to me it is moving towards, then you have a political competition uh, or you, you, you have viable alternative governments in a way that you didn't uh, this time last year. So um, that seems to me is uh, the big change that is that is possible in the future, though um, uh, the, the, the caveats of the unpredictability of Irish politics and global politics over uh, such a long period of time, uh, I think always have to be borne in mind. Indeed, caveats galore and quite quite right too. We will leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Teresa, to Pat, to Jennifer and to our producer Suzanne Brennan and our engineer JJ Vernon. If you do want to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We are always more than delighted to hear your thoughts. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.